Welcome to Trafe, a debatably Jewish podcast. So Sam is checking the Gmail and we have almost no letters from listeners. I mean, it might be related to the fact that we have yet to fully put out an episode. For those listening, please write us. We will read our favorite letters on the show. We encourage hate mail as well. So today was a pretty tough week. There was no Canadian Jewish news. Wait, today was a tough week? This <laughs> week was a tough week. Why? There was no Canadian Jewish news. Yeah, I went to the website and I saw that they weren't publishing for a while. Yeah. I mean, pretty respectful that they tweeted about how they weren't going to be publishing this week. Well, are you suggesting that people should have been working throughout the entire summer? No, not in the least, but I just think that they didn't leave us kind of wanting, like they kind of let us know the boundaries of their leaving and coming back. And it was, it was, it was nice of them. You heard it here first. Sam Bick, not a friend to organize labor. <laughs> the other fairly noteworthy thing that happened the last few days is that it seems clear that the conservative party hates the jews oh yeah erwin kotler's thing didn't get through right yeah it's kind of amazing that we will not be having a a, a jewish heritage month in, yeah, we, in november we should clarify that erwin kotler the uh liberal mp from montreal put a measure forward in the house of commons to propose a jewish heritage month why november is my first major question yeah i think that's a question for erwin kotler yeah did the conservatives just not pass it because they didn't propose it? Like, what was the? Do you have? I, yeah, it just it's curious to me as to why they didn't support it when they seem to be pretty supportive more broadly of the institutional Jewish community. Well, all the reporting seemed to indicate, yeah, it was just wasn't a conservative measure, so there was no reason for them to vote for it. Yeah. But, but well, I was reading about it, and it, it turns out that Ontario has already a Jewish Heritage Month in May. Hmm. that's on the books. I mean, I grew up in Ontario. I grew up in an Orthodox Jewish community. I've never heard of it before, but somewhere on the books is a Jewish Heritage Month in May. Yeah, that's weird. I guess the takeaway for this, for anyone who's listening, is that if your like, weird uncle or aunt is really supportive of the conservatives, you can tell them that the conservatives don't like Jews because they didn't want to have a Jewish Heritage Month. I mean, it is absurd. Argument. I think it's absurd. I mean, who cares? <laughs> At the end of the day. So who do we have on the show today, Sam? We have the director of design for TrafePodcast.com, which doesn't exist yet, but the director of design for all of Trafe entities, Claire Hertig, who is going to be talking about pinkwashing and a Quebec delegation to Palestine. Great. So we've talked about the JDL before on the show. Uh, we talked a bit about their brief effort to try to create a Montreal chapter. It didn't seem like anything really came of it, but it seems like they've had possibly the first event in Montreal. It's a little unclear. They showed up to an event organized uh, by Tadamon that was celebrating 10 years of the global BDS movement. And Sam, you were there, right? I was. I was there. I'm also part of Tadamon, so I helped put on the event. For anyone who's interested, we'll put it in the show notes, but there's a YouTube video of the talk, so people should check it out. But yeah, the JDL did show up. Part of me feels like it might not have been an officially sanctioned JDL event because they didn't write about it on any, on any of their social media. So there might actually be an imposter JDL formation in Montreal. Or more realistically, it's just a bunch of people who kind of undertook JDL activities without formal sanction from that mayor fellow. But when they, they showed up to disrupt the event, right? Yeah, it, it was it was weird. I mean, they came in, there were about 10 of them. They were, a few of them had Israeli flags, a bunch of them had IDF gear on, and there were a few JDL shirts. We didn't really have a contingency plan for them. And when they came, it was kind of decided that some of the more broier looking dudes of Eastern European Jewish persuasion would be the ones to kind of interact with them. 
And on the one hand, that makes a ton of sense because you want to offset them as much as possible. But it, there was also this weird element where it felt like European Jewish experience became the focal point of the conflict. And it's hard when the people coming just want attention. It's, it's kind of hard to negotiate what to do with that. Mm. Like, how do you confront it without centering them? Well, I think it's just immediate ejection is the only way of doing it. Uh, but the problem was that it was a, it was a it was an event at Concordia, which is a public space, and yeah. it was not in a, in a private room. It was in a kind of hallway, which is bad planning on our part. But basically, the Concordia security was called, but they just kind of stood around there, and the JDL folks were just screaming obscenities for a solid forty-five minutes. Well, it's, I, I think there's a thing that happens where it's really easy to make fun of the JDL or to kind of like throw spitballs because they seem so ridiculous at times. But the JDL, at least as it manifests in Toronto, is a pretty serious thing. And they manifest in ways that are really violent. And I think that if this is a first action of a burgeoning Montreal chapter, that's something to be taken seriously. And I think for other leftist Jews listening to this, it's something that should be uh, talked about in a serious fashion as well. So if, if anyone knows about JDL organizing, if anyone has any hot tips about a JDL Montreal chapter that exists, anything you want to tell us about it, it'd be very helpful. In the last few days, Jewish institutional Twitter has been filled with two major topics. The first being Iran and Iran's relationship to Israel. And a second thing that didn't get enough coverage was the re-signing of SIFTA, which is the Canada-Israel Free Trade Agreement. So I read some of the media reporting on this, and it was pretty ambiguous as to what was actually being expanded. Yes, there are few numbers. The one number that they repeated was that the two-way merchandise trade between the two countries is $1.6 billion in 2014, which is triple the amount of when the free trade agreement started in 97. But I spent actually a bunch of time looking at previous iterations of SIFTA, and it's incredibly ambiguous. It talks about major categories like technology and agriculture, but there's really not a lot of meat in, in any of the discussions about it and any of the documents online. Yeah, it felt like more of a media strategy press release where a lot of Jewish media were just celebrating the expansion or that the fact that these talks toward an expanded agreement had concluded in a way that was celebrating something, but it was very unclear what exactly they were celebrating. There's no details here. Yeah, definitely. I mean, there's the ongoing like love in with Harper and Netanyahu, where they pretty much say, this continues to demonstrate the ways in which we love each other and share values and want to continue trading with each other. I think the timing of this actually is pretty relevant, though, even though there's not a lot of substance to it in two ways. So the first is obviously this is in the context of an election coming up at some time that is a bit unclear to us right now. And I think the Harper government is jockeying for the Jewish vote. But at the same time, this is when the United States is actually pressuring Israel along with the European Union uh, to not demolish the town of Susia while this pressure is being mounted by other countries, Canada is actually announcing that we're just expanding trade with them. Yeah. I mean, the, the other kind of overt thing is within the context of all the Iran stuff, all the major or like what are deemed to be major powers are all in favor of this deal pretty explicitly. I don't know ex exactly what the foreign minister in Canada has said yet about the Iran deal, but I assume that Israel feels fairly isolated on this front, is trying to mobilize support in the US, but I think getting the support from Canada is beneficial, at least fractionally. So we're we're at the point in the show, as hopefully the music indicated, where we are ready to give out our squares for the week. Sam, uh, what do you have this week? This week I'm going more for a collective. I'd like to give a shkoyach to the group of Hasidic folks in the Mile End who recently unveiled a new building on the corner of Park and Bernard. Uh, have you seen it? 
No, no. I, what, what's the building? So it's it's a, a few buildings north of Bernard on uh, on Park, and it appears that some entity within the community purchased a bunch of buildings and built this large kind of community space synagogue hall. Unclear. They basically converted a bunch of uh, walk up apartments into the ground floor. At least is some kind of a gathering space. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, so Meshkoyach goes to the group of people who make the decisions at this new building who decided to put up a massive sign in Yiddish on the roof that kind of is probably 15 or 20 feet and just looks out on park at all of the like angry anti-Semitic folks in Utremont who harass the Hasidic community. And there's just a giant fuck you that is part of putting up a massive 20 foot sign. All in Yiddish. Do you know if they've gotten any flack yet? No, I have no idea. Yeah, we should we should say again for our listeners outside of Quebec that in this particular neighborhood, there is a lot of conflicts between the Hasidic community and their white Quebecois neighbors who are not too friendly about the presence of people who are not uh, have no plans to assimilate into a Quebecois society who are only speaking a language that is technically not allowed as the primary language on signage. Yeah, uh, there's a lot of a lot of conflicts going on so, in, that, in that neighborhood. Yeah, so square to the twenty foot sign that is entirely in Yiddish. And uh, how about you? What do you have going on today? So my shkoyach for this week goes out to the St. Louis Jewish Voice for Peace Collective for the hands down the best Jewish press release I've seen in the entire year, if not maybe the past five years. Oh, wow. That's amazing. There, yeah. I, I don't know how to say this in a, in a nice way, but I, I think the people that we identify with as fellow Jews write many press releases. So this is a large pool that we're gathering from. The press release is definitely a medium of favor for the Jewish left. And so, you know, I might be overselling this, but they called on organizations that claim to combat white supremacy in St. Louis to cut all ties with the Anti-Defamation League. And they went on to also call oh, wow. on the Anti-Defamation League to cancel its July 31st ceremony honoring the St. Louis Police Department. And they said if they don't, that they'll be there with their allies to shut down the event. Oh, attends, attends. So you're saying that the ADL is putting on an event for St. Louis cops? Exactly. <laughs> That's a disaster. So 10 years ago, the Anti-Defamation League in St. Louis started a project with the St. Louis Police Department to, I don't know, have some sort of dialogue and training so that the police department would be able to be more effective in their policing oh, toward man. you know Jewish people or just some watered-down idea of civil rights or something. And... That 10-year program is over, and they are honoring the police department at the end of this 10-year process for the entire thing. Wow. I mean, I, I think this points very directly to what we talked about last week in terms of uh, the ways in which anti-Semitism gets operationalized to end up negatively affecting non-white communities. No, definitely. And part of what they talk about in the press release is actually not just calling out the ADL, but calling out Jewish leaders in general who want to have it both ways, who want to walk in the Black Lives Matter protests and chant, and then in their institutional lives and their institutional roles are supporting groups like the ADL in this process of honoring the police. So on our last show, we bid a goodbye to our friend Abraham Henry Foxman over at the Anti-Defamation League the outgoing director who has since retired. Now, what I want to talk about is a ridiculous thing he said a few a few weeks back following the massacre in Charleston, South Carolina at the Emanuel AME Church. And, and after when he was asked about it, he said that this is a reminder that in the mind of the bigot, Jews and other minorities in America are equal threats. And I think this just speaks to the general 
perspective of the Jewish community, particularly the white Jewish community, that white supremacy in America targets Jews almost identically to black people, if not more so. He went on with the rest of his speech to try to implore the black community to join ranks with the Jewish community. I think this is a question about space and privilege and how we take it up. When representatives of the Jewish community, predominantly white folk, white Jews, take up all the space and discussions around race and racism, it really kind of just like sucks up all the energy and focus that could be actually put towards confronting this in a meaningful way. Yeah, I mean, when he went, he wasn't going to offer Jewish community support to the black community. What he was doing was actually telling the black community that they should be joining the Jewish community in their struggle or in our struggle, supposedly. So I think that this kind of rhetoric and this kind of perspective, which itself is incredibly white supremacist, is tied up essentially with what the ADL is. But one thing that we have to do, unfortunately, is I think we have to offer a retraction of something we said in the last episode. Uh, We had a segment where we said goodbye to a few people. And one of those people was Abraham Foxman because we heard the news that he was retiring. Um, Unfortunately, in an interview he did the other day with Michelle Malka Grossman in the J-Post website, he said that, in fact, he's not retiring. He is rewiring. He said, I hope to continue to have a voice, not as director, but now as director emeritus. There will be a lot of issues that need perspective and voice. And I'll always be here. So Abraham Foxman, it is with great regret that we retract the goodbye. Yeah, that's unfortunate. However, Schoyer to the JVP St. Louis, St. Louis, I don't know what the proper pronunciation is there. Schoyer to the Jewish Voice for Peace chapter in St. Louis for actually standing up against white supremacist organizations within the Jewish community. I think there's one other thing we have to add here. I I don't think we can let this episode go by without mentioning this. Uh, so is this an honorable mention? Honorable mention. Yeah, like an honorable square to um, the publication that put out the video of the Queen of England hiling as a child <laughs> <laughs> with her then King of England father. I don't exactly know I, how the I monarchy works. I think it works. was her uncle. And, her, and yeah, so I totally saw this also. <laughs> and uh, so the story, as far as I understand it, is that it was her uncle who was kind of leading the whole exercise. Yeah. And he was a Nazi sympathizer who actually stepped down because he was found to be communicating with the Germans in some capacity. Whoa. And his brother, which is the current queen's father, was then became the king of England. Okay. Anyway, it's just pretty amazing. And like no denial. They're just like, we're disappointed that this video got leaked. That is an interesting approach to take yeah, isn't to that wild? everyone hiling everyone, situation. There's all this weird British media that was upset with the publication for yeah. leaking it and betraying the the dignity of the royal family or some ridiculous Yeah, this shit. is some cultural thing that I just don't get. I don't think we need a leaked video to tell us that the royal family of England has white supremacist sympathies, yeah. but uh, it is entertaining yeah. uh, to have video evidence of this. So if we are doing this week in... Nazis. Yes. Uh, I think honorable mention also has to go to Donald Trump's political campaign, who made <laughs> a, a notable tweet this past week of a picture of him in front of an American flag with SS soldiers <laughs> in the picture behind him, I believe. Yeah, it was bizarre. I think someone, some intern just Google search soldier, put it in the background, and some crafty internet people noticed that they had SS badges on their arms. I kind of don't want to give that guy any discussion, even on our insignificant podcast. So instead, we'll move on to our final piece of Nazi-related news for the day, uh, which is that during a white supremacist rally between neo-Nazis and the Ku Klux Klan in the United States, um, a man showed up with a sousaphone to troll the demonstration. And we're going to play a clip for you right now. 
In early June, the Center for Israel and Jewish Affairs organized an LGBTQ delegation of Quebecers to Palestine. We invited Claire Hertig into the studio to talk about pinkwashing and queer Palestine solidarity organizing in Montreal. My name is Claire Hertig. I'm a human being who lives in Montreal, and uh, I'm a teacher, and uh, yeah. So Claire, can you talk a bit about the work that you've done against pinkwashing in Montreal? I've been involved in a few things. Uh, I did a workshop, one Israeli apartheid week, just of an introduction to pinkwashing. So just kind of what it is um, and how to fight against it and why queer people should care about pinkwashing. Uh, I've also been involved, I've participated, not in the organizing, but in the demonstrations themselves when there have been uh, anti-apartheid contingents in uh, the Pride March in Montreal a couple times. Could you possibly give a brief overview of pinkwashing as concept? So pinkwashing, it comes from the term that most people are probably more familiar with, which is whitewashing, which is, you know, literally putting white paint on something, but figuratively to sort of deflect from the negative side of something by, you know, covering up their lies, making them look better. This later in the 80s was adapted into the word greenwashing, which is used as a for campaigns to make companies look like they're environmentally friendly when they aren't actually in reality. And so then more recently, we have this term pinkwashing, which basically consists of PR, marketing or policies that highlight an organization or a state support for gay rights or its status as a gay vacation destination to detract attention from or justify the state or the organization's negative behavior. So in the case of Israel, it's pretty clear how this applies. People ask, why why is this a queer issue? What does this have to do with queer rights, LGBTQ rights? But I take the perspective that any struggle cannot be and should not be fought in isolation. All of our struggles under the multiple oppressions that we experience in, in our society are linked. And I think that if you are a Palestinian, for example, who is queer, you're not going to be able to start you know, a movement for your rights as a queer person, that's probably going to take the backseat to fighting for your rights of basic survival, of getting through the day, of passing through a checkpoint, of trying to get to university, of all these different, you know, daily struggles that Palestinians face. Just like if you think about struggle of women in Palestine, you know, just like everywhere in the world, women experience systemic oppression and sexism. And yes, there's a movement for women's rights, but it's definitely can't flourish completely, just like a movement for queer rights, until actually the basic fundamental mental human rights of everybody are respected and upheld. And that's just not happening. It's hard to, you know, run a queer community center if you can't even get there because you're sitting at a checkpoint for 10 hours because they won't let you through. Or, you know, somebody can't come because they don't have the right ID or whatever. So just all of these things, all of these struggles are linked. So you can't just fight for queer rights. You're fighting for every everyone's rights. And I can't support, oh, gay rights in Israel. It's so awesome when a Palestinian is, you know, being systemically oppressed by that same government. So what does resistance to pinkwashing in Montreal look like for the most part? <laughs> right now, there isn't really much happening actively. Um, I think it's a conversation that people are having more informally. In the past, it has mostly been about education within sort of the queer community, um, with workshops like the ones that I did, and with a presence in the, the parade. But there isn't that much actively happening at the moment. 
So what's your understanding of the history of the presence of anti-apartheid blocks here? Well, in Toronto, Cruise Against Israeli Apartheid organized um, contingents in their pride parade, and they received a lot of um, blowback from different folks, And but they continue to fight um, to be present in the parade because they identify Israeli apartheid as a queer issue, especially because they see Israel as a state that uses its supposed reputation of being a gay rights paradise as a way to deflect from its human rights crimes against Palestinian people, its crimes against humanity, and war crimes, um, which are well known. So people in Montreal as well are part of that same perspective, and so they've organized a presence at a few different parades, not this past year, but a couple different. Um, couple different years. We've seen this probably in the last couple of years in, in North America, efforts by the institutional Jewish community to mobilize what they would identify as marginalized or minority communities to get on side with Zionism, to get on side with the Israeli project. Can you talk about what's happening right now? Well, yeah, I mean, it's along the lines of, like you mentioned, there have been trips organized for uh, Aboriginal and Indigenous people, you know, lots of different communities. And so the queer, or I should say the LGBTQ community, because it's not specifically queer, it's people who identify across that spectrum. They have been targeted as a group that could go get on side with Zionism, with Israel. And so they they gather a bunch of people who they claim represent this community. I'm not Quebecois or Francophone, so the people on this specific trip, I don't know really who any of them are. But who knows if they represent the community or not. That in itself is questionable. And so, you know, they take them there. And I saw one of the participants posted on his Instagram, him with all his friends at the Dead Sea with mud on their faces. And Israel is so amazing. It's just a PR exercise um, because obviously it's very um, stage managed by the hosts themselves. Do you think that the language barrier between the Anglo and Francophone communities here is a dividing line for the type of organizing that's going on against pinkwashing? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think I'm somebody who's been involved in activism in different sort of parts of the activist community. So anti-war activism, feminist activism, lots of things. And in all of these communities, I've definitely found just like across our society here that there is often a, a division between those who are francophones and those who are anglophones or allophones. I mean, I'm sure they could find anglophone um, and other folks from the LGBT community to go on their trip, but they specifically are targeting francophones because they want to target that specific subset of the community. And then you also have the nationalist element where they have also, you know, recruited young nationalist Quebecois to, to identify as, you know, they want their Quebecois state and Israel should have a right as a state, et cetera. So it's all kind of in the same package. So it seems like there's also in Quebec, there is a there's this person, Carlos Godoy, who is leading this new trip, who's not Jewish, but uh, used to be the vice chair of the Quebec Gay Chamber of Commerce. And then after a 2006 trip that the Center for Israel and Jewish Affairs organized to Israel. He actually joined Ga'ava, an Israeli queer organization on the board. And do you feel like, or have you seen similar relationships between Quebec and Israel forming? Well, the thing is, I think one of the things that this kind of speaks to is, so this guy, for example, Carlos Godoy, was with the Gay and Lesbian Chamber of Commerce. The people that they've chosen in their contingent are people, you know, they're a certain class of people. They are certain uh, racial identity. And, you know, these are not your regular folks walking on the street. Carlos Godoy obviously is a businessman, for example. A lot of these people, there's a female police officer on this con- on this tour. Um, so it's targeting a specific type of person that fits into kind of the state's idea of what a good 
or model gay is, right? So, and then you get into this idea of homonationalism where you have, you know, a specific type of gay person is approved of by the state and then used by the state to promote itself and to mask its other problems. So you had this kind of idea as well. Um, there's an ad about ethical oil where you had a picture of somebody about to be beheaded because they're gay somewhere in the Middle East. And then you had a picture of pride next to ethical oil and two white people's hands, might I add, with rainbow bracelets on. So it's, it's targeting a very specific subset of people. I don't want to do the narrative of um, progress or whatever, but they're in in the discussion of this kind of a trip. In the Jewish media, there was kind of an acknowledgement to um, what they call like smears of pinkwashing. Again, I'm not asking for you to say that it's all rosy now, five years later. But can you chart some of the pro like some of how things have changed in the last ten years around this issue, around um, discussions about this issue? Well, I mean, it's clearly a win that in their own article about their magical trip, they feel the need to even mention this word pinkwashing. Okay, they put it in quotation marks, but that means that they're very conscious of it. And then the response given by Godoy is just insubstantial. So I think that shows this keyword has been talked about so much that people have it on their minds. And then they, they don't just talk about Israel's a gay paradise. They actually have to say, no, 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 it's not pinkwashing. It really is a gay paradise, guys. So I think that's an interesting sort of gain, so to speak. Yeah, I mean, earlier today we were texting about that Canadian Jewish News article that was describing the trip of LGBTQ folks from Quebec to Israel. And one of the funny things, or, or something that you had raised that was pretty funny, was the fact that Godoy, who's the chief delegate of this enterprise, mentioned that nowhere besides 48 Israel in the region could two men walk around holding hands. Well, I think, yeah, I mean, that's a, an important key element of pinkwashing, right? It's basically, it's fundamentally based on racist stereotypes. So you have this one way of being gay, that is the Western, European, and also Israeli way, which is, you know, gay marriage, coming out, pride parades, generally being a white middle-class man. And then you have this other notion of what it's like to be gay, which is what pinkwashing is based on in other places, especially Asian countries, Middle Eastern countries. You have this Orientalist idea of you're going to be hanged, you're going to be killed, all these horrible things. Um, you could never come out. Your family will hate you and all this stuff. And it actually completely ignores the reality of being gay in the Middle East. I'm not a Middle Eastern person. I haven't lived there, but I'm familiar with different organizations that exist there. I have friends, for example, who live in Beirut, who are women who are in lesbian relationship. And guess what? They're walking down the street. They're just fine. I'm not saying homophobia doesn't exist in these countries, but it also exists in Israel, too. He makes a hilarious statement in his article about how the thing that they're they're attending in Israel, you could never have it in like Damascus or Gaza City or Ramallah. And two guys could never hold hands on the street there. And that's just hilarious because it's so ignorant. Like Arab and many other non-Western cultures, men holding hands is the most normal thing in the world. And they just do it all the time. And there's, it's, it's a, just a different culture. They, they repeat over and over, Israel's the only democracy in the Middle East and the only place that you can be gay and it's okay, when in fact, it's just not true. You have gay rights organizations in Palestine um, called Aswat and Al-Khaz. You have Meme and another organization whose name I can't recall in Beirut. You know, it's just a foolish claim. <laughs> well, thanks for joining us today. Thanks, my pleasure. Trafe Podcast is Sam Beck and David Zinman. Today's episode was recorded at CKUT 90.3 FM in the shadow of the giant cross of secularism on occupied Ganyahaga territory. 
Thank you to our director of design, Claire Hertig, and to Sax Syndrome for music that you heard on this episode. All articles we've referenced can be found in the episode notes. You can follow us on Twitter and Tumblr at Treyf, T-R-E-Y-F, or send comments and suggestions to treyfpodcast at gmail.com. More episodes soon. Sam, I don't really know what Prussia is. Uh, I I think it's something. To, Germany got uh, constructed very late in the in the nation building game. I think Prussia is part of Germany mm. and part of a neighboring country.